0: Welcome in, you knotheads. You've arrived in the nick of time. I'm Nick Cormier, here to discuss with you the goings-on in pop culture, television, film, and current events. On this week's episode of The Knot Pod, we're going to chat about the two newest episodes of Rick and Morty, as, as we do weekly during this season, Bethic Twin Stinct, and Night Family. Uh, before moving on to the new Star Wars show, premiered on uh, Disney Plus last week. Episode 4 came out just a couple days ago. That would be Andor. Uh, not not a bad show. We'll get into that, though. Uh, followed by Netflix's new film, Blonde, starring Anna de Armas as Marilyn Monroe. Um, very controversial film, getting a lot of buzz on the internet this past couple of days. Followed by Hocus Pocus 2, the new Disney Plus film uh, original that came out. It's been literally about 30 years since the original Hocus Pocus and uh can't wait to talk to you guys about that one very excited finally we'll wrap up this week's uh not pod by my indulgence of the fall 2022 anime season if you guys aren't familiar just like the seasons of the year there are seasons of anime and the fall season is looking to be very exciting uh for all you weebs out there that enjoy the uh the anime stuff so looking forward to chatting with you about that one stay tuned gang Alright, up first on The Knot Pod, we'll chat about the Rick and Morty episodes from the past two weeks. Uh, Brief aside, I know that I haven't been on the last couple of weeks. For anybody who has been faithfully listening to The Knot Pod, I do appreciate your patronage. I do appreciate your support. Uh, I don't want you to ever think that I'm giving up on the thing. Um, It's just been a little bit light in terms of content over the past few weeks. In addition, uh, things have been kind of heating up at my day job, so been a little bit busy working the overtime. Uh, you know, going burning the midnight oil, uh, so to speak. So been a little bit busy trying to get things done uh, on my prime prime job. Uh, that's not a great excuse for not putting out the content. So I expect to get a lot more of this out here uh, and return to a weekly affair after uh you know taking kind of a week off in between episodes here over the past month uh but that's a digression um this is about rick and morty we'll start with the episode three from last week entitled bethic twin instinct which is of course a play on basic instinct the popular sharon stone film i think it's Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not going to pretend that I've seen it. I think everybody, though, at my age, uh, you know, mid to late 30s, is familiar with Sharon Stone, the interrogation scene where she unfolds her legs without any underwear on, kind of uh, with a come-hither type vibe towards Michael Douglas, really seductive, uh, probably, you know, a a seductress type film. I believe she's responsible for the murder that occurs in that movie. Maybe the movie's not about murder. That's how much I don't know about the film. I'm making brazen assumptions. But you know what? I don't count on Sharon Stone to chase me down and take me to task for it. So maybe Michael Douglas would do it. He seems like the type to be like, Get my fucking filmography right, you piece of shit. No, no, no. But anyway, Bethic Twin Stinked. Is a Thanksgiving episode. So, coming off of last year's uh, turkey, where uh, turkey pardon episode, where we find out that every year Rick gets himself into trouble with the U.S. government and Keith David's president, and he's constantly transforming into a turkey uh, so that he can be the turkey selected to get a presidential turkey pardon. Uh, thus uh, paving the way to get his crimes annexed from the record so that there's no record the president can hold over Rick's head uh, of all the misgivings or the issues that he creates by virtue of being a mad scientist who constantly does whatever the fuck he wants, right? So the episode starts off and Rick is a turkey, runs into the, the glass window or door of the house, And he says, pardon me, which is obviously a callback to that pardon episode last season. And Morty asks him if he's a turkey Dracula, which is uh, pretty hilarious, all things considered. Uh, I'm really enjoying the amount of callbacks that we're getting this season. Because, you know, historically speaking, we don't get this level of callbacks in Rick and Morty. But now that they're making this new rejuvenated effort to care about canon, it seems like we're getting more and more callbacks each and every day. Which, uh, I don't know if that's going to wear thin on me, ultimately. But in the interim, in the short term, I'm really enjoying it. So, you know, turkey pardon, I'm okay with the callback. Tur- Morty asks Rick, are you a turkey Dracula now? Which is kind of fucking hilarious. But, anyway, the show gets rolling and Jerry does this whole bit before the opening credits roll up. Where he says he's thankful for his wife. Uh, without his wife, he might kill himself. And he tells the family and, you know... Literally the words that he would, in fact, kill himself if Beth ever left him or cheated on him um, for a little bit of foreshadowing because the episode is literally about space Beth fucking Beth. So I guess the question you have to ask yourself here in this episode is, are we dealing with masturbation or incest? Are we dealing with uh, something horrifyingly unspeakable? Or are we dealing with something incredibly healthy? Again, another meta-reference that Beth makes within the episode itself. She says, am I the worst person in the world for fucking myself? Or am I the best person in the world, the most healthy person in the world? Because I've come to a healthy acceptance of who I am and I've actually fallen in love with myself. I think a lot of people... Uh, You know, nowadays in 2022, have a lot of trouble liking themselves, let alone loving themselves. And a lot of the people that I have known that love themselves have seriously psychological issues, uh, damaged issues regarding, you you know, who they are as a person. They don't have a keen awareness of how they treat others or how they interact with others socially. Uh, they have a very, um, very bad social awareness. They're not a very acute social awareness. So those are the type of people that I've known that have really fallen in love with themselves. They're very much sociopathic or narcissistic, uh, and there's a lot of that going on in Beth in this episode, which is, of course, uh, understandable because she is, after all, the daughter of Rick Sanchez, which is something that goes, uh, often unsaid or underexplored in this series, I think this Season 6 is doing a great uh, job of focusing on the familial uh, surroundings of Rick and Morty. We're not just dealing with Rick and Morty this entire season, right? So, like, there's been a lot of focus on Summer this season, uh, a lot of focus on Beth this season, uh, a little bit of focus on Jerry this season, uh, people that are related to Rick that aren't actually Rick or Morty themselves. So, uh, I really do enjoy that aspect of exploring the Smith family and what is the inner workings of that family and what they're like as a whole unit uh, and the individuals that make up that unit not just focusing on Rick and Morty and their adventures the entire time. So the episode has uh, pretty much no B-plot. There's kind of like a a B-plot in that Summer, Rick and Morty are playing this realistic video game (laughs) system which is a pretty great running gag in the episode. And, like, the video games they play are asteroids, except when they turn up the realism setting on the system, they're in the middle of space, and they're just traveling for a long time, not finding any asteroids to shoot, shoot, because most of the asteroids, it's a very empty, void space, that you know, in space. So they're not finding as many asteroids as you would find in those classic games. Uh, Let's Street Fight, which is, of course, a knockoff on Street Fighter, Except the realistic twist is they start the day as the fighters who aren't yet haven't yet found each other so they're really angry and they want to fight with each other but the meters instead of charging up for like an ultimate special move or something like that they're uh, they're decharging in terms of them losing their anger uh, and their frustration with one another so they're losing their will to fight because they're trying to find each other in order to get a street fight going but at the same time, they're kind of like slowly losing their energy uh, and calming down, you know, because <laughs> trying to start the fight and find each other is so taxing uh, that those meters are, are slowly winding down. So I thought that was a super good one. And then there's the old, like, word games that used to play on DOS where, like, you're in the forest and they're in the forest. So they're like, go north. It's like, you've moved north into the forest. You're still in the forest. Okay, go, go north further. Okay, you're still in the forest. Your mother is waiting at the airport. It's getting dark. She'll be in the shadows soon. (laughs) And, like, I think they're doing a reference on what we do in the shadows because the question is, like, what do they do in the shadows in the vampires thing? Uh, But apparently that exists in a world where vampires hunt in clearings because eventually they go north far enough that they exit the the forest and enter a clearing, and that's when the vampires... Uh, win, uh, quote unquote. The vampires have won because you've entered the clearing and exited the forest. So, uh, as Rick says to Morty, he's working with. I'm working with the same information you are, which is not a lot, but uh, apparently in this world that's highly realistic. So, so yeah. Meanwhile, Jerry is unaware of this the entire time that uh, Space Beth and Beth are fucking behind his back. Um, whereas Morty and Summer both become aware at different points in the episode, um, and both become, you know, like kids are—they kind of like, get all hollowed out when you hear the sounds of your parents fucking. You know, it gets really weird. Um, and so I thought that was super interesting. Be- uh, Beth, or I'm sorry, Jerry joins in on playing the game when the kids finally try to distract him, so he doesn't find out about the very obvious affair that Beth and space Beth are having. And then, of course, he tries to play the video game system and and randomly ends up on a game called Let's Have an Affair <laughs> where a woman is sleeping with another woman behind her husband's back. So, you know, in classic Rick and Morty fashion, Jerry's just getting fucked over anyway. So fast forward a little bit. Uh, Space Beth and Beth are in the deck, Rick's deck. They do a full San Junipero. Uh, of course, if you're not familiar with San Junipero, uh, it's an episode where two old dying ladies in a hospital go through a whole virtual reality simulated life together um, in, in a virtual reality simulation um, in San Junipero. It's a Black Mirror episode. It's really great. One of the best ever, won all kinds of Emmys, really good episode of television. Rick makes a joke when he busts in on him in the hollow deck. You guys did a full San Junipero in here. There's masturbating and then there's masturbating. So I guess we have our um, opi- we have Rick's opinion of what it is. It's not incest. It's uh, masturbation. Although there's a callback later to Naruto, the baby that was made in the sperm episode in season five, which I didn't enjoy, and I'm sure most fans didn't enjoy. Didn't need the incest baby callback. But I think it was more or less Space Beth uh, bringing to light the possibility that not only was what was happening between her and regular Beth, uh, you know, masturbation, but it possibly was incest as well. It's hard to say. Um, When you're dealing with fucking yourself, it's really difficult to define that, right? (laughs) For the most part, we just call it masturbation. But then again, we don't usually have four hands and four legs, two mouths to do it. So, unless you're a very special type of arachnid motherfucker out there, uh, all my arachnid homies, shout out all my arachnids, uh, all my arachnignauds. Um So anyhow, the episode ends with Space Beth going back to space after Jerry does find out about the affair, and he allows it, it becomes this weird, like, thruple situation where Jerry's like uh i like to be humiliated i like to give permission i'm into having two different wives that i can sleep with uh it's kind of hot it's kind of sexy and then of course rick and morty or i'm sorry rick morty and summer all downstairs kind of like crying because they hear jerry upstairs you know being like i'll allow it oh if you like it i like it Ho, ho, ho! you got chris parnell making all these ridiculous <laughs> noises um Quick aside, Chris Parnell as a comedian doing Jerry is some of the best voice acting work that I've seen in anything. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, what have you seen, Nick? (laughs) Here's the joke. I was raised in the age when South Park became popular. Futurama was on television. People had just discovered the premieres of shows like Family Guy and American Dad. So we talk about animated comedies. uh, I was kind of born in the golden age of it. Because The Simpsons is still going, and I'm not even a fan of that show. I used to watch the Treehouse of Horror episodes every once in a while, whatever. I thought that show should have ended. It's in, like, season 30, 3900 or something at this point. It's, like, 3900 seasons of The Simpsons. But what my point is is uh, I came up on South Park. I was raised on that shit, I was raised with Family Guy, although I never liked Family Guy as much as I liked American Dad. So good to see that show still going because I thought, always thought I had a little bit more highbrow humor than Family Guy did. But that's an aside. Um, my point is, is I really enjoy animated comedy, and I feel like I'm a good critic for it because I've lived in the literal golden age. Futurama is a top top three. It's not close. Like Futurama's better than Simpsons. I'll stand. I'll die on that hill. I'll die on that hill. Like, I don't know where to rank Rick and Morty yet. It's one of my personal favorites of all time. Honestly, I'm kind of obsessed with the show, obviously, slightly. But, uh all right, I guess I'll try right now. Okay, I'll try right now. Best animated, top five animated comedy shows of all time. Number one, South Park. You heard me. Uh, you know, if you don't like it, that's fine. They're topical, satirical. They're brilliant. Number two, Futurama. They had like four different series finales and they were all equally fucking amazing. I don't know how you end a show four times and do it perfectly every single time, but Futurama somehow did that. Not surprising. Another Matt Groening property just like The Simpsons. That's a little bit more highbrow, kind of like Family Guy and American Dad. Number three, Rick and Morty. We're only in season six. We got a long way to go before we know if it's going to stand uh, with the longevity of a South Park, of a Futurama, but it is one of the most highbrow animated comedies. I do enjoy it greatly. Number four, The Boondocks. That show's great. Um, rest in peace to Grandpa. It's a shame that the actor who portrayed him passed away these past few years during the pandemic. Uh, because they were going to do another season of the boondocks because it's one of the greatest animated comedies. It's not close. It's super, super topical. Always highbrow. They called that R. Kelly shit years before R. Kelly ever got arrested. Um, The boondocks. And number five, Venture Brothers. Uh, Another Adult Swim classic. Venture Brothers. Highly underrated uh, never properly given the respect it deserves, but it honestly might even deserve to be higher on this list. It's just tough because, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of animated comedy out there to discuss. Um, honorable mention, uh, American Dad and The Simpsons. Uh, I'm not a huge Simpsons fan, so I respect it. Uh, but all the ones I listed I feel like deserve to be higher than it. And that's just the way I feel about it. Um, that being said, American Dad... Uh, I haven't given it its due respect in years. I need to catch up because it's been like eight seasons since I've watched. I'm sure it's all great stuff. American Dad's fantastic. Anyhow, let's get to the second episode of the past two weeks of Rick and Morty. That'll be Night Family. Um, it's kind of a horror episode. So it's got a horror vibe to it. So the same way that Marvel is kind of going into different genres, Rick and Morty is doing something similar. Night Family is like got this like Hitchcock kind of like like, really weird. The birds. Not, I wouldn't say the birds is a good example. Like, a psycho. There's some weird, like, horror vibe going on with it, right? So, the premise is that Rick has a device from space. And when he's sleeping, he can actually accomplish things because the night version of himself, you know, the night family version of himself, is doing stuff. So, he has these abs, these washboard abs. He has cum gutters from season five, if anybody gets that reference. And... Now, everybody in the family, when he shows this device off, wants to have their night person do something, and it appears as though Rick isn't having it until Summer starts to give him the silent treatment, and it's another tip-off that Rick actually cares, A, cares a lot more about what Summer thinks of him than it initially appears, uh, self-referenced in this episode by the callback to Summer being like, I care very little what you think of me, Rick, um totally super sweet callback to I think season one um your opinion of me value your opinion of me matters very little to me your opinion very your opinion matters very little to me summer um and then there's like the whole like I said the season is about like exploring the other members of the family uh the other members of this this smith family that all comes from the same genes uh, ...as Rick Sanchez, right? So there might be the Smith family, but a lot of this is born from Rick's DNA. And if Rick is this fucking super genius, then it stands to reason that his lineage would be... ...you know, some kind of super genius smart, too. And we get shades of that with Space Beth. We get shades of that with Summer this season... Obviously, Morty has shown a propensity to have, like, a very high EQ, high, much higher EQ than Rick, uh, an emotional quantitative, uh, and, and you know, and on occasion, a very high IQ as well. Um, you know, he's a teenage boy, so he's younger than Summer. He has a little bit to learn, yet, yeah, so it makes sense that Summer would have a little bit of a higher IQ in addition to that EQ, which she doesn't have compared to Morty, but I digress. So Knight family, they all get a night person. Uh, Morty wants the washboard abs that Rick has. Uh, Beth wants to learn trombone. Summer wants to learn Spanish so she can pass the test in school. And Jerry just wants to write letters with himself. So he gets a pen pal and day Jerry and night Jerry just start writing each other letters Which is super fucking hilarious cuz like Beth says in the episode, you know I don't think you understand how a night person works (laughs) It's like you really don't cuz you're wasting it if you're just like oh, I'll have a pen pal. That's so fucking stupid You're talking to yourself in letter form, and it's so wild but Lo and behold, later in the episode, Knight Jerry kind of saves the day. So, all things being equal, it's kind of hilarious how this, this episode unwinds itself. It is like Night Summer is in charge of the Smith family, even in charge of Rick, uh, which denotes that there's a, a much higher respect level for Summer than Rick has ever shown us in previous seasons, which, again, I enjoy uh, very much because if Beth is super smart compared to Rick, then it only stands to reason that Summer is also super smart uh, compared to Rick because, you know, it's always the future, your future generations that are wiser than you. Like my kid, you know, she's only turning 12 here in a couple of weeks, but here's the reality. She's learning French and Japanese, and it's self-taught through Duolingo or whatever app is teaching kids language these days, but she's self-teaching French and Japanese in her spare time. Like get the fuck out of here. I want to learn Japanese. I want to learn French I'm not doing those things and it's hilarious that she is because she's just that much brighter than I am I think I'm a smart cookie and she's a whole entire fucking basket of uh, full of fucking brownies and cookies uh, Comparatively in intelligence. That's just how evolution works. You know we get as, as humans we evolve I know um, you know my dad was a pretty smart guy compared to him. I'm kind of way smarter which is, like, you know, you would think that that's just how it just goes. So Summer, compared to Rick, probably has a lot of uh, intelligence beneath the surface that we haven't really explored yet. Glad to see where uh, die hard, die hard, die hard, exploring it this season. Um, so the episode continues on. They do, like, a Daleks impression where Summer has made some, like, Daleks slash Cybermen from Doctor Who fame. Um, and they're, like, there to keep the... The demons—they're the—they call them demons or um, da, daemonoids, like demonoids, but demonoids because they do day stuff. Um, ultimately, the 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 night people revolt because Rick doesn't want to rinse off his plates uh, because the night people were quote made so that they can do the hard stuff that they don't want to do while they're awake. So Rick doesn't want to rinse off his plates, which upsets the Knight Family, which causes a revolt, uh, and then a subsequent battle between the night and day versions of themselves. Uh it's got a real tree horse treehouse of horrors Simpsons vibe to it, the episode does. Uh the the credits scroll and have a Simpsons font notably on them, so it's a very direct callback to the Treehouse of Horror episodes the Simpsons did. Um but Night Family is one of those episodes they've apparently had in the can for years. Uh, I'm glad they did it, because it was an excellent episode, very unique, some good animation they don't usually use, Uh, no A-plot and B-plot, just one big A-plot, yeah, Night Family was a fantastic episode, so far this season of Rick and Morty has been the best one I've ever seen, and I say that with trepidation, because I don't want to be a prisoner of the moment, I don't want to be one of those critics that always says the newest thing is the best thing, but I'm just being honest, if you're four episodes into a season, and they've all been, like, B-plus or 8 out of 10 rated episodes or better, then, like, you're having the best episode, the season of Vic and Morty that you've had since season 1 or season 2. Probably season 2, because I like season 2 better than season 1. But you're having the best season ever, and all in the year where you decided to do more callbacks, more self-referencing, more canonical additions. I think this is the resounding notification to Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland that we all want you to do this show. We want these insulated one-off episodes with the Knight Family, with uh, Beth fucking her space self, with the Morty A a Life Well lived where he's in the Roy machine. He's divided by eight uh, five billion NPC non-playable characters. Uh, We want these episodes. We also want the Prime Rick to come and shake his naked ass in front of fucking Rick and like show us that there's a plot and there's an overarching story behind these characters because they matter so much to us. You can still do 150 years of Rick and Morty. I wouldn't advise it. I don't think that, uh, what I'm, I don't love that The Simpsons just continue to go 35 million years later. You know, some days I look at South Park and I'm like, you guys should really quit this shit because. Some episodes are great. This last episode, this last season had 6 episodes in it and maybe want to vomit in my mouth. There was only two really great episodes out of 6, so if we're converting 33% of our episodes, that's sad. Maybe quit while the getting is good or like, you know, switch over to making these 2-hour long movies once a year and just do one movie a year and people will be really stoked on that. But uh, so far, this season of Rick and Morty is the best season I've seen. Now, granted, I only started watching Rick and Morty episodes, or seasons live during season four. I was late to the bandwagon, not afraid to admit that. But season four and season five both had a couple of duds along the way, whereas uh, season six so far, we are four for four in great episodes. I hope they keep up the great work over there. Best thing Dan Harmon ever did, kind of like relinquish some control to the young bloods who love this television show and are telling him exactly what people like me, mega fans, want it to be. Rick and Morty season six, absolutely phenomenal. That's right, it's phenomenal, phenomenal. Okay, great, let's talk. About Hocus Pocus 2, starring Sarah Jessica Parker, Bette Midler, and I am ashamed to admit that I don't know the name of the third actress uh, who plays the third Sanford sister. Um, I just know that she does a great job in this movie, just like she did in the first Hocus Pocus. I should probably learn her name. It feels really unfair that I don't know it. It should take literally seconds. ...for me to look that information up, and out of respect for her, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right now, live on the podcast, while I'm sitting here at the microphone. Going to look it up, because it feels wrong to not do it. So that'll be Kathy Najimi, okay? And uh, I did that because I thought this movie was very well done... Of course, it's not the original Hocus Pocus. Anybody who goes into a sequel that's made 20, 30, 40 years later and thinks to themselves, this is going to be as good as the original or better than the original. Like, uh, you're kind of crazy. Your expectations are sitting too high and you might want to bring them down a notch because you're just going to get yourself hurt. You're going to get yourself wound up. And ultimately, you're never going to get to that level again because some things are cult classics once in a lifetime and you shouldn't get your hopes set too high for them. However, however, I will say that Hocus Pocus 2 is pretty much what you can hope for from a 30 years later sequel to a hit cult classic film. So, in this film, you have Sarah Jessica Parker and Bette Midler and Kathleen Najimi carrying the film as the San sisters. And there's no other way to put it. They do such a wonderful job, um, as, um, Winifred, Sarah, it's, no, it's Winifred, wait, it's Winifred, Mary, and Sarah, yeah, that's right, Winifred, Mary, and Sarah Sanderson, um, the Sanderson sisters, not the Sanford sisters, uh, the Sanford stepwives, I don't know what I'm thinking of, or what I was calling back to, but, This film has a bunch of great gags. It has a bunch of great acting performances. Basically by uh, Tony Hale. Does a good job being Tony Hale. He plays himself in this film. Um, You get Bette Midler carrying this. Sarah Jessica Parker doing a great job. Kathleen and Jimmy actually doing a great job. Uh, Now I'm going to know her name forever. Because she did a really wonderful job. And... I would say that most people probably had their hopes up for this, were, were coming in with pretty low expectations. Because like I said, it's hard to make a sequel 30 years later that feels like it works or is relevant or any of that stuff. But this kind of did that. So you start off with like the young, uh, the the young Sanderson sisters and how they were treated in Salem, right? So you kind of give them a little backstory into how they became witches at what age, which our new main characters are, like, these three young girls who are at a similar age. uh, And it turns out one of them is kind of like a witch who's becoming a witch, and the other two, like, are interested in witchcraft. So there's got that whole vibe going on, right? Uh, Meanwhile, they're all dealing with, like, this teen angst. So, like, there's the, the backdrop of, like, teen angst going on. Um, and then, like, we have another black flame candle. Now, this is one of those things where you're just like, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How is there another black flame candle? I guess there really shouldn't be, but there is. It's not really explained how another black flame candle was created by the shop owner, uh, who was apparently present on the original night in 1993 when the Sanderson sisters first came back for the original Hocus Pocus, but, um... Again, I don't think it's overly important that you get caught up on the plot devices of stuff like this because it doesn't, I don't think it's that important to fought like, oh, you know, if Palpatine returned, like this is, you know, that's for Star Wars, that's really stupid. For, you know, a sequel like Hocus Pocus 2, that's less stupid and more like, all right, well, we got to where we needed to go because we needed something to drive so that we could get to the point where the Sanderson sisters are somehow back, right? Uh, so yeah, but really I will say that there's a lot of good gags in this movie. I like the, the whole entire scene in the Walgreens, the bit they're doing there with the lotions potions that have like the souls of the youth already in there. So if they just like use the lotions, then they're going to get what they're looking for in the sacrifice of young children, like in the potions thing. Uh, so I like what they're doing with that. Yeah. Um, that's all very wonderful. There is. Uh, a mysterious witch in the beginning who like gives them the book and there's like a lead coming out of the movie where uh, the mysterious witch maybe is in bird form and is following the new young witches after the Sanderson sisters have been dispatched but let's get back to the gags I enjoyed the Roomba thing so they're in the Walgreens they're looking to fly away there's only one broomstick for Winifred so Mary and Sarah gotta figure it out Sarah is on a Swiffer so Sarah is flying around on a Swiffer Sweeper and Mary gets some Roombas and uses them as, like, hover, skate, flying, witch sneaker things. She says cowabunga. Now, that's kind of a lame joke that I hated in the, in the movie. But, like, the gag with the Roombas is pretty good. They have a mind of their own. Like, they get them out of the salt circle when they're, like, stuck in the, in the garage in the salt circle. Uh, so that's pretty great. The Roomba gag was pretty enjoyable. Of course, Bette Midler does some singing in this movie. Bette Midler just has this swag. Like, I've never been a huge Bette Midler fan, but in Hocus Pocus, as Winifred Sanderson, she really crushes it. And in this sequel, it's no different. Um, you know, I really got to get my hat, hat hats off to Bette Midler. Uh, to this very day, I'm still singing, I put a spell on you, and now you're mine. Because I uh, think it's one of the best like movie songs I've ever heard. When uh, I think it's Nina Simone who originally does that song, uh, back in the day. But man, does Bette Midler crush that song! And uh, I was hoping for like a repeat of that in the movie. That was asking too much. I understand we don't need to rehash it, but like I sure would have liked it. Um, they did the bitches back. I'm sorry, the witches back, uh, which was pretty good as well. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed what this film was doing. I would give this film. A solid eight out of ten. It had, uh, it was better. It, it didn't have any business being this good, uh, but it still was pretty good. Um, there were some bad moments and some poor writing decisions. Like at the end, they want us to feel bad for the Sanderson sisters. Because Winifred, uh, does, like, this ultimate magic spell that she was warned by the mysterious witch in the, uh, in the portion when they were younger girls and they first became witches. She was warned to never cast this spell. Uh, she certainly didn't read the warning that it would cost her what matters most to her, which is, of course, her sisters, uh, Sarah and Mary. Um, they begin to disappear. Uh... There's two great portions. I mean, a lot of the lines, the best lines in this film are Bette Midler speaking. So one of them is when they're in the garage and they're trapped in the salt circle. She says, my eyes have misted over with a tragic tears from a lifetime of failure. (laughs) I thought that was really good. Bette Midler delivery line. And then at the end, you start to feel kind of bad for them briefly because her two sisters disappear when she casts the ultimate magic spell. Um, cause she sacrifices them unknowingly and she says, uh, undo what I have done. I beg of thee." uh, and then she's thinking back to her sisters, uh, disappearing into nothingness. And she says, but they were my passionate partners and unholy mischief. My doing has been my undoing. Uh, there's definitely a very doctor who vibe, like doctor who saying goodbye, uh, at the end of like Matt Smith's, or David Tennant's time on Doctor Who, like Bette Midler's doing this whole soliloquy. She's definitely doing uh doing this whole like soliloquy monologue thing, where she's lamenting the fact that she sacrificed her sisters uh, for her power. Uh, because the ultimate power, the ultimate magic is rather worthless without Mary and Sarah by her side. So it's truly uh, uh, lamenting her status as being the last one left and wishing to the young witches and to the book that she used to hold so dear uh, that there's some way they can reverse it. So it turns out they're able to send her off with her sisters, uh, and that's the last we'll ever see of the Sanderson sisters, except in a post credit stinger where... There's apparently yet another black flame candle. Uh, Gilbert, what are you doing, man? What is that like? The shop owner, Gilbert, uh, became obsessed with these witches and apparently doesn't understand that they're like eating children and killing children. That's where it gets kind of hard to feel bad for Bette Midler at the end of the film. Despite it being, like I said, Bette Midler's selling... Uh, herself as Winifred in this movie is so good that, like, despite being a literal child murderer, you do start to feel bad for her. You're like, oh, no, she lost her sisters. Winifred, oh, no. Oh, that's so sad. You lost your sisters. Oh, my God. Even though you, like, literally murder children in these two movies, you're just, like, a child killer. And you're putting spells on people so you can kill them children and suck their life force out like some Hollywood fucking you know, New World Order fucking crazy person shit, like, but they do, like, because Bette Midler sells so well, because her acting is such top tier, because they want to disney fight a little bit at the end, you do kind of feel bad for her, so she disappears into nothingness with her sisters, and it, uh, it remains to be seen if we'll get any more Hocus Pocus property, if so, hopefully, immediately, because Midler Midler's not getting any younger, let's face it, you know, she's, she's, uh, Closing in on damn near 100 at this point, but uh, Hocus Pocus 2, 8 out of 10, way more enjoyable than it had any right to be, I expected nothing but callbacks of like Thora Birch and Zachary Binks and all the characters from the first film, but like it wasn't an endless stream of callbacks at all, it's quite original, quite re- well done. Uh, the writing uh, like I said trying to make us feel bad for a child murdering witch that's pretty tough but they did set that up with like a little bit of a look when they were younger type thing in the start of the film the young version of the uh, the Sanderson sisters was great they were all very well done they clearly watched themselves some hocus pocus in preparing for these acting roles Uh, yeah check out Hocus Pocus 2 on Disney Plus fuck yeah that shit's really good guys All right, let's go ahead and chat now about the new Disney Plus television show, Andor, uh, which is, of course, another Star Wars property. Disney did spend all those billions of dollars buying Lucasfilms and the entire Star Wars universe. They haven't done a lot with that because some pretty poor decision-making by Kathleen Kennedy. Honestly, we had uh, J.J. Abrams take Episode Seven. Uh, With like a fumbled handoff to Rian Johnson who decided to burn down everything that J.J. Abrams had started with in that first film. Before they decided that the reception on the Rian Johnson middle film episode 8 was so poor they had no choice but to go back to J.J. Abrams for episode 9. And of course somehow Palpatine returned. But uh, all jokes aside... You get Diego Luna reprising, reprising his role as the uh, Cassian Andor from Rogue One. Now, Rogue One was a big hit because it was a really good film. It was a single shot, Solo. Uh, I also enjoyed Solo for the record. So it's interesting how stuff like Rogue One and Solo has come out since Disney acquired this property. And those have been great great uh, movies that have been pretty well received. Uh, at least Solo was received well In hindsight, not so much while in theater, whilst in theaters, but Rogue One was uh, received very well in theaters. So, Diego Luna taking on the role of Cassian Andor, um, a future rebel. Now, this television show takes place about four to five years before uh, they do steal the plans for the Death Star. So they can smuggle them to Princess Leia, who of course eventually gets them. To Luke Skywalker, who uses his Jedi X-Wing flying powers to drop a bomb inside of a small port shaft and destroy the planet-killing starship. Um, But what we have here is Diego Luna reprising that role. He's also an executive producer apparently on the show, which I didn't realize. Uh, I imagine in order to do this, he demanded that credit. Um, we should note that The Mandalorian has been wildly successful on Disney+, Plus, whereas Boba Fett, The Book of Boba Fett, very poorly received. Um, The Bad Batch has been above average, but from what I can tell, isn't, uh, as great as the likes of The Clone Wars, uh, or any of the other animated properties that have such, uh, a reception and a following. But... So far, this show has been uh, very, 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 very good. Um, and there's no way to put it other than that. So, we're four episodes in because the first three were released simultaneously. And then the fourth one came out just a couple of days ago. Now, after I watched the first three episodes, uh, I was still kind of worried that there might this might not be great. And I'll tell you why is because it was very slow to start, and it wasn't too apparent uh, what the pacing was going to look like for this show, what the focal points were going to be for this show. Uh, Are we just going to get another, like, here's the Rebel Alliance, and here's the background, and oh, look, they're all going to get together, this ragtag group of ruffians, and they're going to take down the Empire. Oh, here we go. Like, uh, I wasn't too sure where we were going. This fourth episode really opened it up a lot. So we got Stellan Skarsgård, who's on the show. Uh, you probably know Stellan Skarsgård from, um, let's see, Goodwill Hunting, King Arthur. Uh, he was in the Thor films. He was, of course, in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, and World's End. He was in Angels and Demons. Um, but you probably, oh Chernobyl. He was great in Chernobyl. Uh, but he is in this as, uh, Luthien Rael, which is, um, uh, he is apparently an antique dealer on Coruscant, but, um, is a rebel operative who has deep contacts with, uh, people in the Senate who are looking to overthrow the Empire, uh, and help the Rebel Alliance, um, there's some great acting out of his character. Um, there's a couple of other characters. I'm not going to get into them all right now because there's so many. Uh, there's this woman named uh, Djamirmo Mirmo. Mon Mothma is in this. Um, so, Mon Mothma is apparently a very famous character in Star Wars lore. I don't know because I haven't read the books, played a lot of the video games. So, just like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. A lot of this information is brand new to me as I am digesting it week to week. But, um, yeah, so the fourth episode's called Aldani, and the entire episode kind of features Cassian joining up with a crew who is looking to disrupt the payroll for the Empire in this sector of the galaxy. So, like, they get a whole entire quarterly payroll... ...for this giant sector of the Empire, and the idea being, you know, if you don't get paid, you're not likely to do your job, right? So, if this band of the Rebel Alliance here, with Cassian Andor's help, can disrupt the flow of payment of salary for these Imperial officers... ...then it stands to reason they can do some serious damage disrupting the Empire and their goals and what they're trying to achieve so um we get kind of a look inside the empire and how it works uh there's some officers trying to warn that there does look like uh there's kind of pockets of resistance that are forming Uh, and maybe they're coordinating with one another, but then, of course, the bureaucracy higher up in the empire is kind of like poo-pooing the ideology that that could be happening because you haven't got the proof and you haven't got the clearance to go find the proof. A lot of red tape stuff in politics, which from personal experience sucks because when you're right, you're right, and when you know you're right, you know you're right, but you can't do a whole lot to prove it, so you just kind of got to hope that someone rides with you on it, but if they don't, then you're screwed because you're just running your mouth and then nobody's listening and next thing you know, something does happen. And they say, why didn't you speak up louder? And it's like, well, I fucking did, but you didn't listen to me, yada, yada. Digressing a little bit, but the point remains the same is we're kind of seeing some of the internal politicking inside of the Empire, inside of, uh, you know, the Galactic Republic. And that's interesting Because it's a angle that we've never really seen in Star Wars before so it's unique it's interesting we know it exists right because any giant bureaucracy is going to have red tape and issues that you run into but it's the first time that we've really seen in any series up until this point we get that kind of purview into exactly what's happening uh, amongst the rank and file there so that's what makes it interesting um obviously we're getting uh, a great performance by Diego Diego Luna does a great job in pretty much all of his stuff I mean I've never disliked him in any role um he's most famous of course uh for the Rogue One but other stuff that I've seen him in even if you haven't seen him in I've seen him in a terminal was one of my favorite films with Tom Hanks um, he plays uh, a worker at an airport who wants to marry Zoe Saldana's character. He's attracted to her, but he has, he's too nervous to approach her. Uh, but he's really, really great in that. Um, uh, what else have I seen him in? Elysium. I saw him in Elysium. Can't remember where I saw him in that, but he is in Elysium. Uh, but yeah, he's in some other stuff too that I can't think of off the top of my head. Uh, he just sticks out as as a young Diego Luna in The Terminal um, because I did love that movie. It's one of my top 100 films of all time. Uh, the Terminal with Tom Hanks, if you haven't seen it yet, it's a great love story. It's fantastic. But anyhow, Andor uh, looks like a surprisingly good entry into the Star Wars universe. And I will say... That I hope this keeps up because this is honestly the best thing since the Mandalorian. I don't think it's particularly particularly arguable Uh, And we want more good Star Wars properties if Disney's gonna go out of the way to spend billions buying this this intellectual property uh, They got to do a lot of a lot of work to repair it from this point because they did so much damage to it with the uh, with the with the sequel trilogy a lot of people disliked it myself included Uh, Episode 7 was fine. Episode 8 was crap. Episode 9 was... I don't know how they could do worse than Episode 8, but they found a way. Okay? They did find a way to do worse than Episode 8. So, long path back for Star Wars, but I do look forward to seeing more of this stuff. I'm already very hyped for Mandalorian Season 3. Can't wait to go on that journey. Uh, Just hopefully Disney Plus keeps getting it right, because I want to keep subscribing to their service, But they're going to need to keep coming out with great original content. It can't all be Marvel content that's going to keep me on board. Going to need to see more from this Star Wars property as well. But so far, Andor, very good show up there with The Mandalorian. Make sure you check it out. All right, let's go ahead and chat about the new Netflix film that just came out. Starring Ana de Armas. It's called Blonde. It's the story of Marilyn Monroe, or at least an artistic retelling of many of her life events. Um, it's come up with a lot of controversy. Uh, there's a lot of people rage. They're saying it's like rape fantasy, rape porn fantasy type stuff. Um, <clears throat> you know, I can kind of see... Uh, What they're saying, but at the same time, I don't really agree with that uh, characterization of the film. I thought it was really well done. When they released it, it got like a 16-minute standing ovation. People were going crazy for it. Uh, You know, a lot of the source material that they're dealing with in that film actually happened. So like, you know, apparently Marilyn Monroe's mother was mentally ill. Um, tried to kill her as a child. She went into an orphanage briefly. Uh, they do skip over that period of uh, her life where she apparently was abused by her uh, by her family, by her foster family. She may have gotten married uh, at a young age. She did get married at a young age and it was quickly uh, over with within a year. Um, but they kind of go through her almost being murdered um, as a child. Uh, and then they go into a director of a movie studio. Uh, as She's trying to get a cast for a role in film, uh, kind of bending her over a desk, pulling down her pants, and raping her uh, basically instantly. And, you know, again, I understand where people are coming from with the whole, like, oh, that's a rape fantasy and like this, that. And that you know, let's, you know, we're also, uh, I think it's important for historical films to, Uh, period pieces to tell the truth and be honest with themselves, not only about the characters, but the time in which they're being filmed. Um, Let's face it, movie studio executives in the 40s and 50s were absolute monsters. So if we're dealing with Harvey Weinstein, the year's 2015, 2016, right? And we're dealing with Harvey Weinstein. Uh, who's run Miramax films uh, and has been a, bit, a huge part of Hollywood for the better part of the last two, three decades, right? If we're dealing with Harvey Weinstein in 2016, what do you think that the people who enabled Harvey Weinstein, the people that taught him this business, what do you think they were like 70 years earlier? That's like almost two full generations uh, uh of like misogynistic disgusting behavior by people in power and you know absolute power corrupts corrupts absolutely it's a fact like this the time and again story of mankind this is a diatribe this is definitely digression but yeah, it feels it feels pertinent to the subject matter at hand so let's go on to it uh Time and again, the history of mankind, we find that people who uh, attain a special uh, type of power that they can wield and hold over the people that they would like to control, uh, they do that, Uh, and that's within... You know politics. You find that within any any field, really. Realistically, I mean, shit. You you read stories now about Elon Musk having uh, babies with the leader at Neuralink or the leader at SpaceX. This woman who's uh, under his employ, uh, but is an executive uh, at one of his companies. And you know that's in t- that's that's in 2022. That's post cancellation era. That's post Me Too era. And still millions and millions of people defend the behavior of an Elon Musk, okay? So, when this film is depicting the rape of Marilyn Monroe at the hands of a studio executive in the 40s... Um, and people call it a rape fantasy. I just wonder if you even want films to be historically accurate anymore. I don't know what your what your complaint is, except for uh, the graphic nature at which they're showing this type of scene. And at the same time, you know, a lot of people, myself included, would say that it's a lot less of a sexual scene and a more it's a more tragic, raw uh, depiction of of horrifying events, uh, of horrifying tragedies that happened. Uh, to a young lady um, in Norma Jean slash Marilyn Monroe. But, you know, I don't get all the uproar because time and time again, we're just getting mad about things to get mad. And I don't really understand what that's about. And I just wanted to get that out there because I know there's been a very strong reaction to some of the scenes in this movie. And like I said, I just don't know what people really want because like either you want honesty in filmmaking uh, or you don't ever want to have your feelings hurt or you don't ever want to be irritate, you know, not irritated. What's the word? You don't ever want to be uncomfortable. And the reality is we don't live in a world where you get to not be uncomfortable. I'm so sick of people feeling like this world is supposed to be uh, formed and fashioned and fitted to them to never have to deal with discomfort. Like... You're going to run up against somebody in your day-to-day life, and they're going to make you uncomfortable. Instead of canceling them, uh, instead of telling them to never speak to you again, instead of getting offended and deciding that you're gonna feel a certain way and never change how you feel about it. Maybe mental flexibility is better than rigid ignorance. Like maybe, maybe thinking about things and changing your opinion on things is more important than trying to staunchly stand behind these values without ever being malleable to the reality that you exist within. You know, I don't know. I don't mean to be doing that, but anyway, this movie is constantly depicting a tragic events that are happening to Marilyn Monroe. Uh, there are there is some uh, interesting discussion regarding like women's rights and women's choice because obviously Roe v. Wade getting overturned and like there being a federal and states battle between abort on abortion right now in this film. Marilyn Monroe gets an abortion. Anna De Armas. Uh, you know, kind of depicts that at the end she was thinking maybe she'd, she'd rather not have an abortion. Uh, but, they, you know, it was already too late. She's probably drugged up already. And the way it's depicted is she goes running off but ends up in, like, a section of the hospital where it's already on fire. Kind of depicting what was happening in the building when her mother lit their home on fire uh, earlier in the film. So, like, there's some ambiguity there. But, again, I think it's really artistically d- well done. I think it's incredibly tasteful uh i I think anna de armas cries a lot in this film but like i'm just saying that it it really i feel her pain like i was really down for the first 20 minutes of this this film i was crying for marilyn monroe i was like not i guess aware of the realities that she faced uh, early in her career as, uh, as a, as a, as an actress, I wasn't aware of what she went through as a child, you know, I thought I had a bad mother, you know, but like, Anna to Armas, Marilyn Monroe had a much worse mother, like, holy shit, she tried to drown her, cause she's, she's essentially a bastard child of another Hollywood movie executive who clearly couldn't take ownership for, for her, um, that's super wild, I don't know if this movie needed to be NC 17 because that was another part of it. It was rated NC 17, probably because of the depiction of sexual assault. Uh, there's a lot of sexual scenes in this. There's like scenes, you know, that are artistically like within her vagina because she's having a baby or having a miscarriage or having an abortion. Uh, several things that happen within this film. But I don't know if it really needed to uh, be NC 17. Uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a little bit strange that it got that rating. I feel like they could have fought that for an R. But maybe for the sake of pu- pu- publicity, uh, they were ultimately trying to go with the NC-17 because they knew that more people would de- be interested uh, if that were the case. So, you know, I think that they got what they wanted out of that. I would love to see uh, the Netflix streaming numbers on this because I, I think it's a great film. Um it I did with her calling, it was weird, uh, having her call everybody daddy, uh, throughout the film, like Joe DiMaggio was daddy, uh, and then her husband, who was played by Adrian Brody, uh, after, after, um, was also, she was calling him daddy, and like, there was definitely a lot of daddy, daddy, daddy shit going on, which I guess was part of the time, but, uh, Definitely, I, I that, that was weird. That one weirded me out a little bit. That one weirded me out a little bit because I got a twelve-year-old, and that's that's super weird. Uh, what else? What else? The movie is beautifully shot. It's great cinematography, like one of the better pieces of cinematography I've seen uh, that I can remember. Really, really well done. Um, Anna De Armas is convincing as Marilyn Monroe, and I don't know who else they could have gotten for the role to. Uh, to look like her, but um, realistically uh, all of her act, all of the scenes where she's doing, I mean, she just does a perfect job. She seems like she's doing a spitting image of Marilyn Monroe. Maybe they could have got someone who looked like her a little bit more, but I mean, I thought it was a fantastic acting job personally. I don't know how other people feel. A lot of people say it's uh, exploitative, but if it's great cinematography, uh, if it's great performances, uh, I don't know what, what the exploitation is other than to say there's too much uh, aggressive sexual content in the film. Calling it a rape fantasy is taking it a little bit too far, though. Like, I get it. You know, you got JFK kind of forcing forcing Anita Armas down onto his cock for a blowjob. That's kind of weird. Uh, but at the same time, he's the most powerful man in the world. And he's like, you know, in the middle of the Cold War. Uh, stuff and in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, like you know, there is there is some reality to that relationship too. There's a lot of uh, whispers that you know Robert and JF J. Jack Kennedy were responsible for her ultimate untimely demise uh, when she overdosed on those barbiturates. Uh, you know, the word was she maybe was going to have a press conference and air out the relationship with, with the president and with with the congressman Robert Kennedy. Uh, you know, and obviously the Kennedys potentially could have had her silenced to prevent that. And there's a lot of rumors regarding that. So, you know, there's some kind of possibility that that did occur. Um, but as for this movie, I enjoyed it immensely. I'm not a huge anti de Armas person, but I thought this was really well acted. Great cinematography, pretty good writing, um, great spot bits by the other players in the film. Uh, yeah, I would recommend that you check, check out Blonde on Netflix. Very, very good film. Alright, let's close out this week's episode of The Knot Pod with my personal indulgence segment of the month, which is to say I'm going to talk to you about something that I love. It's just me kind of vibing on... What matters to me personally, things to get you to know me a little bit better as a host, figure out what exactly gets me going, uh, things that I'm interested in. So I was introduced to anime in the early 2000s, probably just after I graduated high school uh, by a a good younger brother slash friend of mine, Zach Chadwick. Shout out, Zach. Appreciate you, man. I know it hasn't always been great with us, but always love you no matter what. Uh, and I want you to know that. Glad you got your family going and everything's rolling with you, bro. God, glad you got everything rolling. You figured yourself out because uh, I um, always wanted you to be happy. Uh, but anyway, he gave me the gift of Full Metal Alchemist. Not Brotherhood because Brotherhood wasn't out yet, but the original Full Metal Alchemist. What a great show. Uh, what a, What a strange twist ending that obviously didn't follow the manga. Uh, the source material, which of course is what most anime follows from, um, or the visual novels, but rather had caught up to the source material to the point where they had to be creative, create their own ending, and it was a very creative ending. A lot of divisiveness in the anime community about the difference between the original Full Metal Alchemist anime and Brotherhood. Of course, I feel like Brotherhood's the more complete storytelling It takes from the source material with the author's intention of what he wanted the story to be about, uh, which was brotherhood, of course. Um, Zach, I love you. Bre- ben, I love you too, bro. Uh, but anyway, that's an aside. Let's not go down it. It's how I became into anime. I'm very grateful for that gift that Zach gave to me and how much that's meant for my life uh, and the lessons I've learned uh, due to the storytelling that Japanese culture has provided for me. But the reason that I wanted to talk to you today about the anime releases for fall 2022 is because there's so much anime that's coming out this fall season that it would be a disservice if I didn't make you aware of some of it on this very podcast. So we're going to go breaking down the top five animes that I am excited to see in fall 2022 number five we're counting upward from least excited to most excited number five is boku no hero academia that is of course my hero academy it's a show about a young man who was uh born into a world where 80 percent of people have superpowers of course he was born as one of the 20 percent that doesn't have a superpower of um, of course alluding to deku the main character, uh, he eventually meet, well, very, uh, quickly in the show meets all my, the number one hero in the world, uh, he's basically this superhumanly strong and fast superhero, the number one hero at, um, in the world, of course, he's ranked, number one, uh, I'm not gonna go into how these heroes are ranked, but needless to say, he is the most powerful, uh, de facto hero in the world, And his power is apparently somehow transferable Uh, and he's running low on it, so he transfers it to Deku So Deku becomes, uh, the new All Might, de facto Well, he's learning, because he's a kid, he's a teenager, he's growing up Whereas All Might, of course, is the actual number one ranking So he's already proven himself time and again By fighting the biggest supervillains that have come out on the block, right? But, um, it's the sixth season Of My Hero Academy uh, season 5 was great because it did the My Villain Academy arc, which is where uh, some of the villi- the villains had some uh, character progression, had some growth, uh, which is to say they became more powerful and we understood uh, exactly how they became villains because, historically speaking, the line between hero and villain is very blurred. Like, any given day, I could become a villain, and my story could be such... That they say, oh Nick, what a heel! Oh Nick, what a terrible person! Oh Nick, what a bastard! And you know what? You know it might be they might be right when that day comes. I'm not even saying they'll be wrong because the the line between what uh makes a hero, and what makes a villain is so very thin that uh, any given Sunday you could be the you could be the villain of your story right after, and and while you're becoming the villain of your story, you could think you're the hero. Uh, it's really a matter of perspective, right? And uh, a lot of people don't understand that, but the true villains of this world all know that secret that, you know, you could become uh, the villain the villain any given Sunday. So, Boku no Hero Academy, season number six, coming up soon in this fall 2022, a very packed season for anime. Uh, number four on my list is a little uh, hit that came out just a couple of seasons ago here, Spy X Family. So it's a series... Where uh, two spies, or rather a spy and an assassin become a mother and father to this child for ver- by virtue of this mission that they're supposed to complete. And I don't want to spoil the entire story for you because it'd be very easy to kind of like do that. Uh, but it's a great, great first season that they had. This is the second season, Cower number two. Cower, of course, is like thirteen episodes or whatever, generally speaking. Twelve to thirteen episodes is the Cower. Is what a uh, what makes it up? Not to be confused, with the word cow-word. Um But Spy X Family Cower number two is coming up. Uh, it's massively popular. It's probably the biggest anime of the year so far. The biggest original anime to be certain. Um, I think everybody is in agreement that Spy X Family is a must television. Number three on the list is a very hyped anime, and that is called Chainsaw Man. Um, I'd like to go on a diatribe about the deeper meaning behind the name Chainsaw Man and what that actually stands for and what's behind that title and why they're calling it that. But I'm just going to be honest with you. It's a man whose arms and and feet and even head morphs into a chainsaw somehow. I'm not entirely sure how that works. I'm not going to claim that I do understand. Uh, but anime is oftentimes meant to be hyperbolic, meant to be uh, a little over-the-top, sensational, hyper-unrealistic. Uh, um, and this show is apparently going full send button on that. Because there's a human, or maybe he's not a human, maybe he's an alien. I'm not, again, I'm not entirely sure how the mechanics are going to work on this. But I know there's a man whose face, whose arms, and whose legs, or feet, rather, are made of chainsaws. And he's going around, and he's a man, and he's chainsawing things. Or people, or bad guys. I don't know who he's chainsawing. I don't know what he's chainsawing. I just know he's sawing all over the place. Like, he's... Fucking jigsaw. He's just saw, saw, saw. All the sawing. Um, I know people have been hyped about this since this was announced in late 2000. Uh, into the pandemic. I was very much intrigued because the premise, like I said, is very interesting. I don't know how exactly they pull off uh, like this human... Who is very much like Wolverine, except with chainsaws everywhere. I don't know how his head is a chain. So, like, I get how your arms and your legs might be chainsaws. I know, that's a crazy thing to say, right? Like, (laughs) who who understands how one's legs and arms become chainsaws? But in the hyper-unrealistic world of anime, uh, I do understand... To an extent, rather, how someone's arms and legs might become chainsaws. I'm not sure I understand how his head becomes a chainsaw. So, like, (laughs) there's definitely some amount of jumping the shark, aka Arthur Fonzarelli on Happy Days, uh, going on here, even for an anime. But that being said, the hype has been there for years. People have been talking up this uh, manga, saying it's this great piece of work. People gotta check it out. It's a good time, so I have been uh, Interested in what's gonna happen here, and I'm not afraid to admit it. It's on the list I'm gonna be checking it out Uh, It's been many seasons since I watched multiple animes live It's been maybe two or three years since I was in a full season of anime in a winter or summer Where I had multiple different television shows that I had to watch but with the number one episode, which will go into... where I'm sorry, the number one show on my list here, which we'll go a little bit more in-depth about than the other shows. Uh, I'll kind of explain what's brought me back. Number two on the list here is... Mob Psycho 100 Season 3 So Mob Psycho is the story about uh, people in this world that have telekinesis So they have psychic powers uh, Whether it's reading minds or being able to physically move objects uh, with just their mind Like our main character Mob can do Uh, It's this really crazy world Mob is this like really nice kid Who doesn't want to hurt anybody Doesn't want to give anybody problems But he's the most powerful psychic by a wide margin Uh, When he goes to 100% Thus the title Mob Psycho 100 um, His powers are literally Undeniably Horribly World-endingly Catastrophic His power is that of like a true monster, a modern-day superhero kaiju, like a Godzilla, a wrecking ball uh, of pain and power. It's insane. Um, he now he rarely goes to a hundred percent, but when he he has to, he does. When he does, all hell breaks loose. Somebody's got to be able to like take him back off the edge because he's this being of immense power. Like I just imagine that mob. Uh, on his best day, would, like, shit all over Goku going Super Saiyan 10 or 11 or where the fuck Super Saiyans that man's gotten to to this point. Like, Mob would just shit all over his breakfast because that's how powerful Mob is. But it's also a comedy show because he's so unaware and, like, socially awkward, uh, and that is what makes Mob this great character. Kind of like One Punch Man a little bit, like uh, Saitama Sensei. Uh, he doesn't like have a full awareness Because uh, if he did combine that with his power It'd be dangerous Maybe even villainous uh, But yeah Mob Psycho 100 season 3 Looking forward to that uh, A great deal as well Several returning animes on this list Spy X Family still rather new It's only the second season Second cower But uh, returning is Boku no Hero Academy uh, Season 6 Returning is Mob Psycho 100 season 3 uh, you know, these are returning anime that I am looking forward to. The number one returning anime that I'm looking forward to. I'm gonna sing the theme song a little bit and risk some embarrassment here. See if you can guess what it is. If you wanna see some action, gotta learn to have the satisfaction. Yeah, do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm referencing with that little singing blurb? Probably not, but that's okay, because if you guessed, Bleach, the anime that ended in 2012, because they weren't ready to finish the manga, uh, the source material had already been overlapped by the anime, so they didn't have the final arc completed, so they ended the anime for 10 years, I was 26 years old, young, And full of dumb I'll tell you what uh, I had just become a father when the show ended My daughter was like a year or two old Uh, What a show Bleach Ichigo Kurosaki One of the greatest protagonists In anime history Uh, One of the greatest shonen animes Of all time What great characters What great designs What great voice actor work uh, great music, great everything. Bleach was so good, guys. Let me tell you about Bleach. Bleach, people will be like, Naruto this, Naruto that, Naruto this. Look, like, Naruto Shippuden especially and specifically, fantastic shonen. Top five shonen all time, not close. Let's give it its due. Let's give it what it deserves, right? But Bleach was low-key right up there. Like, Bleach was up there. It was the the Espada arc. They invade Hueco Mundo, uh, they had the fight with Olkiora where, where, where Ichigo goes into that demon form that he hasn't been in since. Uh, oh my fucking god, what a fight. Ichigo versus Olkiora is one of the greatest anime fights of all time. I'll die on that hill. I'll die right on that hill. Because that shit is fucking intense. Like, that dude dies, he blasts a whole, oh my god, spoilers, spoilers, holy shit, spoilers. Um... Bleach is coming back. It's the thousand-year blood war. So it's the war between the Quincy's which of course uh, Ishida Uryu is a part of and that's like a very good friend of Kurosaki Ichigo's But I expect that we finally come to the head of their friendship where the familial ties of the Quincy's uh, We always thought Ishida Uryu was the last Quincy there was a war between Soul Society and the Quincy's and we're finally going to get the bloody thousand year blood war conclusion to the Soul Society, the Soul Reapers, the Shinigami versus the Quincy's. We're going to have Ishida Uruyu versus Ichiga Kurosaki. Oh, I cannot wait! Oh, I tell you, look so much for two. Did you go over to All right, that's enough. uh That's enough pantomiming. But like seriously, I've been waiting ten. Fucking years. I don't know. Okay. I'm just gonna say this I don't know how many of you have waited ten years for a fucking thing in your life We live in an instant gratification Society hop on your iPhone download the music instantly want to see something streaming in the snap of a fucking fingertip Forget about it. It's always available and instantly available I don't know how many of you have ever had to wait ten years for a motherfucking thing But I'm telling you right now. I waited ten Fucking years for this anime conclusion. I already like the conclusion of Bleach too. I like where they left off with the Foolbringer arc, with the uh, with the guy who had the sword that could like re- rewrite your memories if he stabbed you with it, with the guy who stole Ichigo's power. But then uh, the 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 captains uh, of of Seretai of um you know of Soul Society imbued Ichigo with a portion of their power each and made him like the most powerful Shinigami. The most most powerful soul reaper um uh like it was man that was a good ending but i knew there was more because we had a whole entire arc that was going to be the longest arc of all of the arcs in bleach history and it had yet to be completed in mango form and now it's coming oh shit son are you guys ready for a little bit of the getsuga tensho I hope that hurts your ears, honestly. Don't even care. Get Getsuga. Getsuga. Tensha. Oh, man. I'm ready for some motherfucking bleach, y'all. I am ready in my veins for this shit. I cannot fucking wait. Oh, man. Oh, God. Just thinking about it gets me so fucking hype.